1: Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. We're going to talk about the one, the only Jeff Bezos, or as you would say, Bezos. I don't know what the proper pronunciation is, but whatever we call him, One thing's for sure, he's one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever of all time. And I think anybody would have a tough argument to combat that statement. Just look at his track record. He's taken a company from being an online bookstore to being the juggernaut that it is today. And that's not an accident. It happens because the person who created the company is a genius and has done so many things well. And so today, we're going to talk about his success formula. And so I know we have a few different topics that we want to explore. And we will get into the story going back in time, getting the full version of what happened, why he started it as a online bookstore and how it evolved over time and what the reasons are that have helped Amazon be the success that it is. But let's start with something called the regret minimization framework. What is that? And why are we going to start there?
0: Absolutely. You know, I find Jeff such a fascinating character. And he's honestly someone, even if I know a lot about him, I still feel I need to sharpen up my knowledge. I need to learn more about the incredible mind that is Jeff Bezos or Bezos, whatever it may be. That's one of the things I need to master. But going to the regret (laughs) minimization framework, the most powerful thing Jeff has taught me personally is the decision on whether or not he should even do Amazon. So essentially what happened is when he was 29 or 30 years old, Billy, he was working at a company called D.E. Shaw. It's an investment training firm in New York City. And he was asking himself, should I start Amazon? Should I not? And he was realized that the internet from his math, his math was actually wrong. But he, he thought the internet was going by 2300% annually. The answer was actually 230,000% annually. It's pretty nuts. I was just reading that on a Wikipedia page. So what made him actually quit that job and pursue Amazon? Because there's a lot of risk, obviously. And the, the decision that was solely based pretty much on what he calls the regret minimization framework. So it goes something like this. He pictured himself 80 years old at that age on a rocking chair, thinking back at his life. And what he says is that life is not about experiencing as much as you can, but rather regretting the least amount of things as possible. And I thought thought that idea was super fascinating. So he just asked himself, if I was 80 years old and I didn't pursue Amazon or try something, would I regret it? And he said the answer was absolutely yes. Even if he failed, if he would have sat on that chair and said, you know what, I tried. But if he never tried, he would have regretted it until his deathbed. So that's probably the most important lesson I I learned from Jeff that I applied in, in my own life.
1: Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I think if we really boil it down, when most people reflect on their life at the end and you ask them, what regrets do you have? They usually regret what they didn't do, not what they did do. And a lot of times the regrets have to do with maybe how they treated someone or interpersonal communication or the relationships in their lives and the maybe the missteps that they took and how they treated people. People regret that. And they regret the things they didn't do. And so if you're going to minimize your regret, think about it from the perspective of what will you look back and say, I wish I had done something. Instead, you want to say, I'm glad I at least gave it my all. And I put everything I could to make that happen, even if it wasn't the success that I imagined. Okay. So he's a Wall Street executive. He's having some success. He's still young, but he's not 19 years old either. I mean, he's almost 30 So where did he come up with the idea, if you know, and why Amazon? When did he, like the name and why a bookstore? I mean, what was the early stage idea formation period like for him?
0: You know, it's interesting. Based on the knowledge I know about Jeff, it was mostly around doing something with the internet, in air quotes. He just knew he wanted to be a part of that era, though I don't think he was sure himself what he actually wanted to build. However, when he did start Amazon and did his market research, started seeing what was out there, he realized that given the growth rate with the internet, people are going to buy things on the internet. He wasn't sure what, he wasn't sure what kind of things they would get. But when he started Amazon in 1994, after he quit D.E. Shaw, he looked at the market and said, okay, Given that, and and let me set some context for people, even if I wasn't born at the time, in the late 90s, nobody was using the internet. Right? A third of people had computers and even the people who did had really slow internet connection. You probably speak on this way better than I can. But yeah, it's not as obvious as it is today that, oh, you have to shop on the internet. It's easier. So when Jeff thought about Amazon, he really focused on this idea of what is the easiest value proposition for people And what he ended up landing on was books. But a lot of people don't really understand the strategy of how he went about that decision. Because there was a lot of other online stores like Pets.com that went bankrupt during the dot-com bubble and crash. There's a bunch of other websites that didn't work out. So why was Amazon different? When Jeff looked at the, the market and he realized that the user adoption rate, that means people who are using the internet, people who want to invest online and buy products, was really, really low. He needed to provide something so compelling and so easy for him to do that people had to buy it in the internet. And the conclusion was books. And the reason why books were the perfect thing to start with that everybody else missed or didn't execute well enough as he did is for the following reasons. Number one, books are easy to ship. The shipping cost for these things isn't hard versus shipping a refrigerator or shipping a TV that could break. That's number sure. one. Number two, it's actually better to shop online than go to a bookstore. Why? Because especially if you're a nerd, you're, an, uh, you're a bookworm, you love different types of novels, there's always those niche things that you want that's not available in your local bookstore, especially in the late 90s. Because back then, they would probably stock you know, the top 50,000, the top 100,000 books, the ones that would sell the most copies. But there's over 3 million books in print at the time. So what this does, which brings us to number two, is the selection. There's a lot more selection on when you have every single book available, which brings us to the three most important point. They don't have any inventory costs. Amazon just has to ship one book to one house to another. Or if they did have inventory costs, they're nowhere near the cost of a Barnes & Noble or another bookstore. So they had all those three key advantages. So anyone who wanted to buy books pretty much had to do it on Amazon in the same way that if you wanted to rent CDs in an easy way, DVDs specifically, Netflix was the time, was the winner. So same thing with Amazon. So it's it's Mm -hmm. the way that he Mm -hmm. approached the market that was just as smart as his execution.
1: Right. And I think key word there, execution. I think it's a really important point because there's a lot of people who could have done the same thing in terms of sell books, but how you do it matters. And in a minute, we're going to talk about this idea of providing the best service, but also the greatest value at the at the best cost. We're also going to talk about culture. But before we get into those, just as a point of reference, you talk about 1994, while you may not have been born, I was a junior in high school. I didn't get my first email address till college two years later in 1995, 96, like literally my first email address was in college. And so here he is starting... A internet company before it is what we know today. And to your point, dial-up modem, those who lived during that era know that sound very well, and they also know just how slow the internet was. So timing is really important, and approach is very important. Notice he didn't try to do everything. So why is, before we get into the culture piece, and before we get into the value and providing the best service, why... Is it better, if we look at businesses, why is it better to
0: start small and expand out than try to do everything all at once? Absolutely. So the reason, and we've seen this in many different instances in many different companies, Airbnb did the same thing. They focused first on stays and then they went to experiences. And there's multiple examples of that too. But I think the key here for people to get is when you focus on one market and one product or service. It's a lot easier to do it 10 times better than your competition if all your time is focused on that one thing. Whereas if you're doing 10 different things or 10 different markets, 10 different ideas, and you're spending an hour on each one, you will never get there. Because if somebody else is spending a lot more time on a single one of those verticals, you just won't be able to deliver a better product. So that's why it's always important to focus on what is the angle that you think you have an edge on. So it's kind of like if I said, Mm -hmm. you know what, Billy? I'm just going to make YouTube videos about cooking. I'm just going to make YouTube videos about singing. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Would they be entertaining? I guess. But they wouldn't be really useful to the world. Whereas because we funnel into public speaking, it's a lot easier for me to develop an expertise for that specific thing and add a lot more value back into the market. So that's why it's so important for you to really be specific about delivering an exceptional customer experience and product for a very small group of people. Because if you fail, it doesn't cost you a lot of money either. But then the second you find what that thing is, is what we call product market fit, where the product fits the market that you're trying to sell it to. and The product's good enough that that market is starving for the Mm -hmm. product. Then you could start scaling that in the same way Amazon did monstrously with books.
1: Well, you remember when we interviewed Steve Hoffman, Captain Hoff, the number one reason startups fail is because they lack the product market fit. They lack that. They have not figured out a way to make sure that their product is actually in demand and that it fits the needs of the clients that they're going after, the customers that they're going after. And so clearly... One of those bits of wisdom that you've shared in the past is this idea of making sure that your product, your service is 10 times better than your competition. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so there's a rule in startup land that Gary Tan talks a lot about. Gary Tan was the, one of the first investors in a company called Coinbase, and he's a CEO of a company called Initialized Capital, one of the best VC firms in the world. And he says, look, your product needs to either be 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, Or 10 times better if you want to stand a chance. But here's the crazy thing with Jeff is he was all three. Mm. He was 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster, and 10 times better. And that's why Jeff was a scary entrepreneur. If you ask me another example, Billy, of another company that has done this, I actually have a hard I would actually have a very hard time figuring out. I can name you founders in each category. But a founder who has done all three in a single company, that is absolutely scary. And that's what Jeff has done in spades. But going back to you who's listening, mm-hmm. you only need one of the three. You could either be 10 times cheaper. You could either be 10 times faster or 10 times better. It's just the reason why Jeff is revered as one of the best entrepreneurs of all time. is He did all three and he executed all three exceptionally well.
1: How did he do it? If you could boil it down, what do you think are the reasons how he was able to do all three when most struggle to do just one.
0: Yeah, I would say the first piece is long-term vision. This is what Jeff has that a lot of entrepreneurs don't have, is he had a 20, 30-year vision for Amazon. It wasn't a quick buck where he's like, oh yeah, we're just going to sell a bunch of books, make a lot of money and then sell the company. No, that's actually, to use Jeff's own product, his first prize analogy, that was chapter one of his 50-chapter game. 500 chapter again. And I think chapter 500 is landing on Mars, which is super fascinating, right? It's start with selling books, then go into toys. They had like a negotiation with Toys R Us and then kind of crush them, which is another thing. And then after that, they went to other verticals. They started dominating all the verticals. Then after they went to Amazon Prime, they did all that stuff. And now they're doing TV and media. But all else to say is Jeff has been exceptionally good at having a multi-decade vision. Most of us don't really get the following, including me, by the way, is that the best way to actually win is to outlast everyone else. If you're able to outlast everyone, you have a very strategic vision for where you want to go and where you want the company to be. It's a lot easier for you to execute that. And Jeff from day one told the shareholders when the company went public that I'm not going to give you any dividends. He was very clear about it. It's not a decision he changed since the beginning. You've been telling Wall Street from the beginning, look, I'm going to take all the profits. We're going to reinvest it because Amazon will one day become the everything store where everyone will want everything only from Amazon. And that was the vision. That's the first piece to success.
1: You know, interesting you brought this up because it actually sparked something that I, I think is really fascinating that, you know, for a long time, they didn't show profit, right? Which I know we've talked about this in the past. This is a very normal thing. For companies to keep extending and not show the profit. But eventually, obviously, they have, not least of which is owed to AWS, which is, in my mind, one of the core reasons why the moat around Amazon is so wide and so big. Because yes, there are other players in the cloud business. But the reality is AWS is so far and away. I wonder, I don't know how much knowledge you have on AWS. But why did it take so long for them to reach profit, and what were they doing to allow themselves to thrive to be now where they're at, where obviously it's like they're
0: untouchable? Yeah, of course. So, in the context of you know profitability, Amazon has been profitable for a very, very long time. I'm sure they could have turned a profit just based on their numbers. So, when I know the company, they could have turned a profit much earlier than they did. The reason they didn't was intentional, not because they weren't a profitable company. They were just reinvesting all of their profits back into the business. Because when you're in a tech company like that, the focus is really growth and dominating market share, not reinvesting out the profits and sharing that with everyone else. It's just dominating the whole thing. And then once you dominate the whole market, and then you just reap in all the benefits, which Amazon is doing today. And a lot of the shareholders are are pretty happy, right? 25, 30 years later. But yeah, that's the piece, right? It's the profitability piece around Having that clear vision and saying, hey, these are the decisions we're going to make. The other piece, thinking about AWS, here's what I do know, is it goes back to the second point that we're talking about, which is what made Jeff so successful about being 10 times better, 10 times cheaper, and 10 times faster, is ruthless culture, and more importantly, open-minded culture. You know, Jeff, one of Jeff's philosophies is if you have an idea, he wants to hear it. He wants to know what you think, especially if you're somebody who's doing really well within the company. And I believe what happened with AWS, it was just one of those ideas, they saw a trend coming up and they want to be the everything store. So I think they just tried it and end up working well for them. Since they already knew web infrastructure really well, since they were operating in that business for a long time, they were early adopters. But the other big piece that I want to emphasize with AWS is it's such a great example of the brand is more important than the service. Mm. Like it, Amazon could have a hotel. I think Seth Godin says this best. You know, if Nike had a hotel, we would know what would happen in that hotel. Like you could imagine what a Nike hotel looks like. So same thing with Amazon. If Amazon started a hotel tomorrow, we would probably all go. We could imagine in our heads what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Like a Whole Foods there and it's, it looks amazing right? So that's the key. The brand is more important. I think that that played another good piece into Amazon Web Services success as well.
1: Yeah. And the brand extends beyond one vertical that exists within this company because clearly they have their hands in so many different things and some aren't as profitable as others. The margins just aren't there. And you think Prime, yeah, I mean, it made it so easy to get a package delivered to your house. And now Prime Video makes it so easy to get a movie delivered to your house. And obviously, these are just two of literally hundreds of different verticals and spaces that Amazon's in. But yet, to your point, the consistent through line amongst all of these is the brand and the expectations of what you're going to get. Because you know when it's Amazon, it will be at a certain caliber, that it's going to be fast, it's going to be affordable, right? And it's going to be Amazon. Amazon and it's gonna be the, the known entity there is that it will always be an Amazon experience. And when it's an Amazon experience, whether that be cloud-based services or shopping or entertainment, you know what you're gonna get and it's you're not gonna be disappointed. And if you are disappointed, they will take care of you. And so because of all those things, the brand becomes such a central component to the success of the business And then when you operate in areas where you can have higher profit margins and you can allow yourself to really have your fingerprint on so many different things, I don't think people even realize AWS powers almost anything and everything you could imagine. It's shocking when you look at just the reach and the scope. And so if you aren't aware, go ahead and do your own due diligence and research AWS and just see how wide and far the uh, tentacles go. I wanna double down on this culture piece when you think about culture within the organization, clearly there's great companies like Zappos, there's Southwest, there is companies that are known for building incredible culture, like even Netflix. And what is it about Amazon? What are some of the things that you know, aside from what you've already mentioned, having openness and other things like that, what else from a culture standpoint stand out?
0: Yeah. And you know, Zappos is actually the perfect example. Jeff tried to buy Zappos for almost a decade until he was successful. And the reason Jeff was so fascinated with Zappos was just that the culture. Tony Shea and his co-founder, Alfred Lin, when they started Zappos, for those who don't know, it's a shoe company where you essentially buy shoes off the internet. And the customer service is so amazing that people just keep buying their shoes from that company. It's a super fascinating concept. And what I especially liked about Zappos's culture is they did a couple of things I want to point out because Jeff did some of these too. The first one is any call center employee that got hired, right before they accepted an offer, they had two options. To take the job or to take a cash prize of $2,000, I believe it was $3,000 now towards the end of that initiative, to not take the job. So if you don't take the job, we'll give you $3,000 or $2,000, it was some number. And the people who ended up not taking the cash prize and wanted to work at Zappos, that's actually part of what contributed to a lot of the amazing culture. That's one piece. The other piece that was that was interesting in Zappos as well is the idea that there was no average wait time. There was no. Let me explain it differently. There was no limit in how much time customer service reps could talk to clients. So I'll give you an example for context. In other call centers, to maximize the profitability of the call center, the people who are on the phones have a certain maximum of time where they want to go through customers so that they can maximize profits. Zappos had a completely different approach. They said, yeah, just talk to customers as long as you want, as long as they're happy at the end of the call. And there's this one crazy story about a customer from Zappos calling them and asking them to deliver them a pizza. And the guy just said, yeah, sure, we'll just deliver you a pizza. And they did. And they freaked out that the pizza arrived. And, and it just goes to show you that that's the other piece they spent more time. But the third piece is do whatever it takes to satisfy the customer. That's the other piece about Zappos's culture is the idea that, hey, we'll just do whatever you want, even if it's not related to shoes. And that's one of the crazy stuff. And Jeff, of course, and we'll talk about that, has implemented a lot of that in Amazon.
1: And then years later, you, Brendan, Kumarasamy, talk about it on a live. And I'm sure it's not the only time the story has been shared for a $20 pizza. Like that right there speaks volumes, which is why I'm so amazed when I get on the phone with somebody and they have an opportunity to get a quick win from a customer service standpoint, but they completely miss the boat. I had this happen recently and it was an absolute joke. It was like clearly a mistake that the company made and they could have made it right. For a very, like for a $25 waiving some fee and they didn't want to do it, I talked to the manager and the manager was like, I can't believe he didn't offer that. And it's like the simplest thing goes a long way. Okay, so I don't want to leave the culture piece until we've explored everything. What else on that front? And then we'll move into a few other areas before we wrap up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say the other piece behind Jeff's success is going back to what Zappos did so well is they were customer obsessed. That's why Jeff was so fascinated with Zappos. Because that was his core Mm. philosophy and Amazon is your competition is not other companies. Your competition is your customer. They're the people you should be scared of because they have the money you want. So everything they did at Amazon was just focused on the customer. Think about Amazon Prime. I mean, at the end of the day, Amazon Prime, and Jeff says this, and I quote him similarly. He said, we have to make Amazon Prime so good that the customer would feel crazy not to take us on it. And it's 79 bucks a year, and you get unlimited two-day free shipping. That's nuts if you buy a bunch of stuff. So so at the time, (laughs) even people at Wall Street were like, you shouldn't do that. And obviously, Jeff didn't listen. Kudos to him. Credit for that. He never listens to Wall Street. That's why he's so successful. (laughs) Is The reason his rationale is, well, if they buy Amazon Prime, they're just going to buy everything off Amazon, Mm. which ended up happening for almost an entirety the other piece that's interesting to, to Bezos' culture is the idea of scrappiness. In the early days of Amazon, Amazon is so scrappy that people who started at the company had to build their own desks. Super fascinating. So it, it gives you that scrappy like mentality to always save costs. Mm-hmm. So because they always saved money, they can reinvest that into better customer service and get that 10, 10, 10 that we're looking for. 10 times better, 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper. And he was able to succeed by being extremely scrappy. Mm -hmm. And the other piece is the high performance mentality. I mean, I was reading articles just before this interview started. One count in 2015, I was reading an article of somebody. He hasn't met an employee who hasn't cried once at their desk. It's a super high performing, super intense culture at Amazon. Maybe things have changed recently, but in the early days. But because of that, of overpaying their top end people, they got a lot out of them. And they were able to execute the vision of Jeff at a breakneck speed. So much so, I'll tell you another quick story. When Seth Godin was on an episode once, he was talking about how he went to a Walmart conference. He was a keynote for Walmart in like the late 90s. And even at Walmart back then, there was like a sign somewhere at like the corporate offer where it said, don't compete with Amazon because they were just so ruthless. And Amazon was just getting started. So it was super fascinating, crazy stuff.
1: And when you really break down the story, there are so many elements that you could point to that have helped him reach and the company reach the level of success. But anytime that happens, there's also going to be failures. There's going to be mistakes. What stands out from a a mistake standpoint? I love that you brought up the frugality and instilling this idea of really trying to think cost and have this almost startup mentality. But what were missteps that he had or anything that stands out from a failure standpoint?
0: And you know, it's fascinating about the failure step because that itself, to your point, Billy, is a lesson of its own, is he has the best example of another piece of advice that, that I think we've talked about in other episodes. So it's bears repeating, which is the following. You only need one home run for it to count. So what does that mean? So let's say we're at a baseball game and people are throwing balls and there's people lining up to swing. Some people are going to try once and say, I don't like this game. Other people are going to try three, five, 10 times, and they're going to keep missing. And the crowd's booing them. Boo, you suck. And then there's some people after a hundred times they give up. And then there's a very, very, very small percentage of people who just keep swinging, Mm -hmm. just keep swinging. But here's the punchline, Billy. The second you get a home run, the crowd cheers goes wild and more importantly, forgets every other time that you missed. Jeff is probably the quintessential example of that. I don't even think most people in this audience even remembers what the FirePhone was. Hmm. Right? If the FirePhone was like an initiative where Jeff tried to take over the smartphone industry. They invested a ridiculous, I believe the number was hundreds of millions of dollars into Firephone. I think it was either tens of millions or hundreds. It was a lot of money. It was a complete disaster. It didn't work. The feedback loop wasn't fast enough. They didn't really know how to create that phone experience in the way Steve and other phone companies had done it. And they just wasted a bunch of money. And Jeff just said, oh, no worries, let's just move on. And he didn't fire anybody. He just said, what can we learn from this experience? And I thought that that was such a fascinating piece to the culture because Jeff knows really well as an entrepreneur, if he's trying to juggle a hundred balls, a lot of those balls are going to break. Mm -hmm. But if one of them works really well, it's going to make up for every other lost project. For him, that one ball was AWS. You got to take the at-bats. You got to
1: swing. If you don't swing, you're not going to have any opportunities to have the home runs occur. So one final question here, Brendan, when you break down this guy, here's a guy that was a Wall Street executive and the company and the success speaks for itself. But why do you think he himself is such a great entrepreneur? Did he learn it? Is he a great student? Did he watch other people? Is he naturally gifted? Is he just brilliant and smart? Like, what is it about him? The DNA of an entrepreneur is what I really want to get to the
0: core of. You know, it's fascinating, Billy. I wish I had a perfect answer for you. But that's probably the greatest mystery behind Jeff. Because pretty much all we know, based on my knowledge of him, he went to Princeton, he was super passionate about space, he always wanted to go to space, and then becomes a Wall Street executive, and then starts an internet company. And now he's going to space. So it's a weird... Plethora of experience. Because remember, he started Amazon at the age of 29, 30, right? He didn't say, I want to be an entrepreneur since the beginning. No, he went to go work on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So what does this tell us? Here's what this tells me, Billy. There's a couple of qualities I think stand out. The first one is focus. He is absolutely ruthless when it comes to working hard. If you think his Amazon executives work hard, this guy is probably on a whole other level. I think that's one thing he did really well is he was very focused on the vision and he worked like a dog, a focused dog to get there. That's why the first one. The second one is he always prepared for the worst case scenario. There were so many times where Amazon could have been bankrupt, like when the dot-com bubble crashed. But because he's, his foresight ability is so good, he sees things going into the future and where things are, are happening and how it's happening. He's able to quickly adjust the train. So when everything blows up, he's still alive and he's still mm. living. Well, every other online business during that time went went bonkers. And this goes back to what Warren Buffett says, right? When others are greedy, be skeptic, be a skeptic. And when everyone's a skeptic, be greedy. I think that analogy applies really well to to Jeff's philosophy with Amazon and what he's always achieved. And finally, the third piece that I think is important with Jeff is the Amazon story never changed from the first day he started the company. His goal was always to be the everything store. His goal was ever, always never to give dividends to the Wall Street people. His goal was always to reinvest all the profits he made back into the business. The story that he's told from the first shareholder letter to today, yeah, sure, some technology ideas changed, some companies changed, but the overarching mission remained the same. Mm. And he's a great example of a guy who just focused on one idea, executed it to perfection, find the right people, inculcated his vision, his obsession, his work ethic into them, his intensity, and got there after a lot of years of hard work and a lot of doubters telling him he wasn't going to go everywhere or anywhere.
1: It's not just hard work. He's very smart with how he allocates his time. I know in reading a little bit about his time management, he putters in the morning, which basically means he's not doing much. But I know at a certain point, he knows he's most creative and has the best Ability to make decisions. So, morning time, I want to say like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., that's when he's making his core decisions. He knows later in the afternoon, it's not the time he's going to be making decisions. So, he only spends a certain amount of his day making his decisions. And it's all based on the neuroscience that he's studied to understand how he operates best and when his mind is best equipped to do the type of problem solving that he, Jeff Bezos, needs to do. So with that, I want to say thanks to everyone who joined us today and for being a part of this journey with us. And Brendan, thanks for opening up your mind and your well of information and knowledge on Jeff. It was really, really insightful as always. And I absolutely love talking about this kind of stuff with you. Can't wait for the next one. And until then, please do make it a great one. We'll talk to you all soon. And thanks for joining. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.